0: Hey there, welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the podcast that digs into the minds of unexpected leaders and unexpected ideas that are shaping the world of venture and business as we know it, always in the most raw and unfolded form. I'm your host, Sergeant Chan and today we have an absolute treat in store. In this week's episode, again in Oklahoma City, thanks to my friends at Cortado Ventures, I sit down with the incredible two-time best-selling author, David Epstein, whose work has caused quite the stir among entrepreneurs, investors, and business leaders everywhere. Now, in a world where everyone seems obsessed with hyper-specialization, David flips the script and challenges the status quo, and yes, Malcolm Gladwell, with some mind-blowing arguments. His book, Range, takes us on an eye-opening journey through history, science, using captivating case studies from stories of legends like Tiger Woods, the Pulgar Sisters, Roger Federer, and in essence, shows us how those who embrace diverse experiences and cultivate a broad range of knowledge often outperform their narrowly specialized 10,000-hour counterparts. How can we do the same? Now let's dig in.
1: David, you just had an amazing conversation with my friend James Rogers that we also had on Billion Dollar Moves. Uh, What were sort of your top highlights from what was the discussion earlier?
2: I mean, I really think hearing about James, his innovation, which was making a coating that makes fruits and vegetables last much longer, and hearing how that really came out of an analogy uh, from his background in metallurgy, essentially, and thinking about how metal rusts and how changing, you know, adding elements to, to steel could create stainless steel. So that it didn't spoil, essentially, and taking that analogy and taking it over to fruit and saying, how can I make a coating that stops fruit from doing the same thing, which is taking in too much oxygen, just like steel. And that, to me, is so common in the history of scientific innovation, this idea of someone taking an analogy from one field and bringing it to somewhere totally different, and that leads to breakthrough. So it's really neat to hear kind of a story that is emblematic if you study the history of scientific innovation.
1: That's right. So if you think about, you know, the past day we've had, right, we were at Cortado Ventures, you know, the mid-continent uh, VC conference, and you've spent some time with entrepreneurs, investors. The question that you and Malcolm Gladwell have been debating over time between 10,000 hours and the sports gene, I'll take this to the world of entrepreneurship.
2: Are entrepreneurs born or made? Look, I think there's there's an aspect of born and everything. Like people are different, our differences are real, and our differences matter. I think the important thing is there's a tremendous amount of unused or unrealized potential in entrepreneurship, right? Because we're not always taking the risks that we could take. We're not always making people feel empowered to sort of run smart experiments, right? To me, in many ways, the theme of my book range that's on every single page, but that would have been like a less marketable subtitle, to be honest, is that sometimes optimizing for the short term or getting a head start can undermine someone's long-term development or potential. And I think in many cases... We're giving people the incentives and cultural messages to optimize for the short term, which will will undermine their ultimate potential. And so I think we could do a lot better at realizing the potential for entrepreneurship that, that already exists in, in our systems.
1: Right. So the crux of range is that you believe in the benefits of experimentation, as you talked about generalization. But as I mentioned, you know, part of the discussion with the LP panel, where we talk about limited partners making investment decisions into venture capital firms, uh, one of the key things they look to as a matrix of Future success, interestingly, is the past track record, tenure track record of investments, and in fact, specialization, deep domain expertise. So in fact, a lot of people in our industry actually say, ah, David's theory doesn't hold up in finance. So what do you say to that?
2: I think having knowledge is good, right? There's, There's no question about that. But there is clearly a point at which there's this tremendous body of research on cognitive biases that show that when people become too narrow, that they start falling prey to all sorts of cognitive biases in in decision-making. And this is very clear in research on investors also. In fact, there are experiments with really quite specialized venture capitalists, actually, where they will be made to assess the likely ROI of an investment, right? And then they're told to step back and start considering this wider range of other sort of structurally similar analogies and other situations they've seen from other people and then asked to reevaluate. And they change their own estimates by 50% just by being told to start thinking outside of your lane and look around you at other projects. And this is very typical called cognitive entrenchment, that when people get really narrowly focused, they start doing the kind of when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail problem and fall into these sort of cognitive biases. So it's not not a knock against having knowledge. It's, it's a knock against not maintaining breadth even while you're developing that knowledge because then you're just walking right into all these cognitive biases, which have been the basis, you know, for like several Nobel Prizes. So if you're not recognizing that these things exist, then I think you're just putting blinders on.
1: Yeah. So, last question, I guess, because we have to go and grab drinks after this. Um, based on everything that you've done, you've worked on this for years. This book came out 2019. You've interviewed many other authors, a uh, common friend, Nur Ayal, uh, Annie Duke as well. What theory was most unexpected that you have come to really like and see to be, yes, this is what people should be applying a lot on?
2: Kind of in, in my own yeah. sort of work and research. Right. Probably this whole area of cognitive psychology called desirable difficulties which are things that people do not like to do because they don't feel good but turn out to be really really good for them and this this kind of dovetails with the specialization issue right once people get really good at doing a certain thing they do more of that only that thing and this is akin to cognitively akin to like if you were going to the gym and lifting the same weights the same number of times every day you're not going to get worse but you're also not going to get better and the way human development tends to work is people do a certain thing over and over and they get better just by doing it some experience And then they cease to get better because they settle, our systems just settle at sort of good enough, right? And even as they get more experience, they feel like they're getting better, but they are not getting better. If you actually track their judgment, they cease to improve. And so if they want to improve, they have to start doing things that are different. This is where these so-called desirable difficulties come in, where you have to start actually trying to face different problems. There's a finding in psychology a classic finding can be summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Transfer is a term psychologists use to mean your ability to take your skills and knowledge and apply it to new problems that you haven't exactly seen before. New investment, new challenge, new business, right? And we have to do that constantly. We're always looking to solve a slightly new problem. And what predicts your ability to do that well is the breadth of problems that you faced in your training up to that date. And so if you become really, really narrow, you sacrifice that. You'll only be good at solving that kind of problem. The thing is, it feels more comfortable for people. That's why it's called in cognitive psychology, desirable difficulties. Because these are things that are difficult, but if you want to get better at learning and develop better judgment, you have to do them. So, broadening the problem set that you face turns out to be really, really important. And that, that was not intuitive to me. Like, Before I looked into the research, I was a 10,000 hours thinker myself, like do the same thing, get as narrow as quickly as you can. But that's just, that's not what the research says. And by the way, you mentioned the me versus Gladwell, people go on YouTube in 2019, we had our second sort of debate in a series. And at the end, he says, you've convinced me, I made an error of conflation where I said a lot of practice is important to get great at something, which is true with the idea that that implies you should be narrowly specialized, which I now think is false. So Mm -hmm. he and I are now on the same ground, I would say.
1: Love it. And of course, you know, the work that I do uh, with solving the gender venture funding gap based on your work in range and the fact that, you know, as we talked about with the 10 year track record law, these things don't apply to underestimated, yeah. underrepresented founders mm-hmm. and funders. What is your one call to action for us to change this?
2: You know, there's something actually, there's a body of work actually mentioned in range that looks at to give you sort of a, a roundabout answer here. For example, Nobel laureate scientists progress more slowly early in their careers than their peers because they are more interdisciplinary. So that gives them power later, but they progress more slowly, get tenure later and all that kind of stuff. There's similar research that shows that women have a greater interest in doing interdisciplinary work Earlier in their careers, but are more discouraged from doing it because they're made to feel that they won't be taken seriously if they're interdisciplinary. So we know this interdisciplinary work is the kind of thing that leads to the biggest impact work. And we know that women are more likely to want to do it and to be discouraged from doing it. And I think that is a tremendous loss because we know in the long term it's the most important kind of work. So if we're not empowering them to take those kinds of smart risks, people should be, they don't have to force women to do interdisciplinary work. They already want to do it and are just being dissuaded from it. And I think that needs to absolutely stop.
0: When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. All right, ladies and gents, there you have it, this week's Billion Dollar Bite. But before that, I wanted to say a big thank you to the Billion Dollar Movers community, many that also showed up at my last event with Kendra Scott in Austin. Yes, more on that soon. Marin Abrams, Tan Nguyen, Karen Wazorzak, Jay Walters, Anita Lee, Ryan Perlowin, Lily Raja. All of you have continued to send me a long list of questions to be answered in this version of Billion Dollar Bite and future episodes. And hey, if you're tuning in, Have a question to scale your venture, leadership, and business to become the billion-dollar mover that you know you truly can be? Drop me a note. Instagram, global is where I'm at. DMs are open. And yes, if you liked an episode, it really helps me out if you share this on social media with your friends. Invite folks to our community. Rate and review the show if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts. Appreciate you. See you next week. In the meantime, keep making billion-dollar moves.